people who are really good at what they do make things look easy, don't they? Whether it's watercolor painting or laying bricks or welding, writing, playing a musical instrument, ice skating, or target shooting. You know, you watch people that do that and you think, oh, I could do that, only to discover, uh, no, you really can't. <laughs> uh, experts such as Malcolm Gladwell, the author of the book Outliers, The Story of Success, figure that it takes about 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert in any discipline. Now, the encouragement from this research is that actually it's not too late for any of us who want to kind of start over in a new area or discipline. But this news can also be discouraging. Some of us might be thinking, where am I going to get 10,000 hours? Let's say you devote uh, two hours a day, three days a week. You do the math, it's going to take you 32 years to learn how to play the guitar. And some of you might even be thinking, you know, I knew it. I just, I knew that I'll never be able to learn how to effectively reach out and share God's love with other people. Well, I want to debunk the notion this morning that you can't learn or that it's going to take more time than you think you have. You see, what Gladwell doesn't tell you is that in many disciplines, including outreach, with one hour, you'll know some basics. With 10 hours, you'll have a pretty good grasp of the basics. With a 100 hours, you're fairly experienced. And with a 1,000 hours, you're actually very skilled. And we all have an hour or 10 or maybe a 100 this summer. And one of the best ways to learn is to watch somebody who's already an expert and then do what they do. So today... Uh, we're continuing our series of messages titled Preparing for a Summer of Fun. We're taking a look at everyday outreach for ordinary people. And last week, we began by unpacking some of our preconceptions about evangelism. We learned that Jesus is sending us out into the harvest fields of our three worlds with his authority, with his power, and the promise of his continual abiding presence in the Holy Spirit, to touch people with his love and his mercy and his kindness and his power. And today we're going to grow in our abilities as we watch the quintessential expert, Jesus, and we're going to look at his approach to outreach and hopefully allow it to shape and form our approach. We're going to see three powerful truths. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for the beauty and power of a brand new day, a day that speaks of new life and new beginnings at the start of a new week. And we want to begin by affirming those things that have become fundamental to our lives to live in your love and in your, in your kingdom. And so we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done right here on the earth among us in the ways you know we so desperately need. Pray that you'd inspire us to worship you that you would enrich our relationships with one another, you would equip us to minister to the world, you would touch our lives. And Lord, not just here in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids as well, that they wouldn't have to like wait to grow up to be the church, but they could experience you in your fullness from their, the days of their youth. We thank you, God, for your goodness, your blessing, your glory, and pray that you put power on your words to our life in your name. 
Amen. I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus is the expert in reaching out to people with God's kingdom, his love and his mercy, power and truth. I don't think you can get any better than God himself at doing something. And so it behooves us to look at how Jesus did outreach. And when I look intently at the record of Jesus's life and ministry in the four gospels, I see three things. The first thing that I see is that all people matter to God. A lonely, socially ostracized leper, a bleeding, broken woman, a Roman centurion, a psychotic homeless man who lives in a cemetery, a Jewish religious official, wealthy, well-connected blue bloods, and poor working-class commoners, the educated, trained in the synagogue, and those that are uneducated, a despised tax collector, a blind beggar, Jewish insiders, Gentile outsiders. As we read the Gospels, we actually discover time and time again that Jesus declares in his words and his works God's inexhaustible and never-ending love for all people everywhere, because all people matter to God. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd like to invite you to open to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be reading from Matthew 9 at the end of what is known as the Great Galilean Ministry. It's one of these sweeping summary statements that Matthew gives us. It's a bookend, as it were, of the first year of Christ's ministry. The first, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, is, is the first bookend. And then the, the second bookend to this year of intense activity and teaching is in Matthew 9. We're going to read the, verses 35 to 38. You can follow around on the screen as well. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. So the text tells us that Jesus was traveling, teaching, preaching, or announcing the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing. And all the while, he was moved with compassion. I like to call this the love factor. Jesus loved people as confused and harassed and hurting and weary and helpless as they were. Love compelled Jesus into action. It was the fuel for ministry in the kingdom. And because he loves all people, because all people matter to him, Jesus then says to those of us who are his followers in the text, disciples, he says, ask the Lord who's in charge of the harvest to send out more workers into his fields. 
Now, last week, we discovered that the harvest fields into which God is sending us go and make disciples, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we actually are entering three worlds. The worlds, the fields are really three where we live, where we work, and the people with whom we do life, our relational spheres. But I'm afraid that one of the problems that numbers of us may have is that while acknowledging the Great Commission as compelling our job description, in reality, we judge and classify people in the harvest as either capable or worthy of receiving God's love. I do. Maybe it's their color or their culture or their economic status, their place and station in life, their clothes, their personal hygiene, whether they have good teeth or not, complicated and messy life situations, and a, and a dozen other filters that, that uh, go on in, in our brains. We look at, at people at those th- through, through those lenses and we think, there's no way they'd be receptive to the love of God. But Jesus' model teaches us to suspend our judgments of people and embrace that all people matter to God. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Jesus loves the world and is moved with compassion for them. And this means that no one is beyond the reach of the love of God. Uh, right where they are, in all of their complicated and messy life situations, in all of their diverse views of truth, and all of their ways of hiding and harboring sin and selfishness beneath a pleasant veneer of, of put-togetherness, behind their criminal records, behind their failed marriages, failed businesses, whatever. God loves them. And his desire is for us to be his fountain, overflowing with life and joy and beauty and power and presence and love. It's to flow through us and splash all over them. Now, one factor uh, in, in the Gospels is particularly compelling and uh, there, there's a chapter in the Bible that's particularly powerful along the lines of the love factor. It's Luke 15. In fact, it's so radical that, that its message would be disbelieved if it weren't part of the Bible. Now, in response to the religious leaders who were upset that he was hanging around notorious sinners, Jesus told one story with three movements. In the story of the shepherd that we often call the parable of the lost sheep, a shepherd has a, a flock of a hundred sheep. One got lost in the wilderness, so the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine to search for the one that is lost. And when he found the lost sheep, he picked it up, placed it over his shoulders, and carried it home. And the story concludes when the shepherd called together his friends and neighbors and said, and I quote, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, Jesus said, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Then in the story of the woman, often called the parable of the lost coin, a woman lost one of her 10 silver coins, each worth a day's wage. And so she swept her entire house, 
carefully inspecting every room with a lamp until she found the lost coin. And then she rejoiced and called in her friends and neighbors and said, and I quote, Rejoice with me because I've found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God even when one sinner repents. And then thirdly, in the story of the father, often called the parable of the lost or prodigal son, the younger of two brothers expressed the desire to receive his share of the family inheritance early. The father complied, uh, granted the request. The son left home and wasted his money in wild living. Then as it goes, his money ran out. He was driven by necessity to take a job feeding pigs. And uh, with, with the, the lost son now broken and desperate and depraved, the story continues with these words. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. uh, His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost and is found so The party began. So in the three movements of the one story, they're all concerned with lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And in every case, that which is lost is found and restored, and the result in all three cases is great joy. Now, most religious people, like the leaders in Jesus' audience, and perhaps including even some of us, think that God is angry with sinners and that he is waiting to judge them and condemn them for their sin and disobedience. But in the story, Jesus turns these preconceptions right side up. The three protagonists are actually very unlikely heroes in the story. They're unlikely because, first of all, shepherds were despised as having a dirty, seedy occupation. Secondly, women were regarded as generally worthless and immoral by the religious uh, institution of the day. And thirdly, the father in the story would have been considered a disgrace to Jewish sensibility and culture in acting the way he did. The audience would never have identified with the shepherd, the woman, or the father as representing God, especially in his attitude towards sinners. But Jesus teaches and models exactly that. God is the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. God is the woman looking for the lost coin. God is the undignified old father running with abandon to embrace a younger rebellious son. This was profound, if not scandalous. Jesus was breaking every paradigm in their mind of who God really is. They'd never heard anything like this before. Jesus is revealing that God the Father's love is extravagant for the lost. 
It spills outside the boundaries of what is prudent and proper. It's lavish. God's love is inexhaustible and never-ending. And Jesus is deputizing us with his authority, his power, and his presence to go share the message of God's inexhaustible, never-ending, all-forgiving love in Christ. We've been deputized to show and to tell that this is God's lavish love for the world. So Jesus is modeling all people matter to God in the love factor. The second thing that I discover is that in looking at Jesus, the expert, is that he saw all people on a journey of relationship with the living God. You see, everywhere Jesus went, he drew a crowd, didn't he? On the mountain, at the seashore, on the road, in the house, in the synagogues, in the temple courts. And understandably, needy, helpless, otherwise oppressed people were seeing their needs met and experiencing the favor of the Lord in dramatic and powerful ways. Nevertheless, Jesus always had time for the individual. I just love how the gospel writers took great care to include the 19 stories where Jesus seized the opportunity to minister one-on-one with an individual. So those stories would have included the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, the Syrophoenician woman who had a sick daughter, the marginalized tax collector named Zacchaeus, the man from Gadara who was demonized and lived in the cemetery, Nicodemus the Pharisee, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, the centurion Roman officer in the army who had a sick servant, blind Bartimaeus, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, to name a few. Jesus saw that God was writing a story in each one of their lives, and he came along and helped them understand what it was that God was doing and how they fit into God's larger story. Each of these people was on a journey, and Jesus entered that journey, identified with where the people were, and then poked and prodded and invited or cajoled or reproved people to take the next step. And it may have been small and apparently insignificant or large and vital to take that next step towards God's larger purposes. Some did, some didn't. I call this the journey factor. Just the other night, uh, Tina and I were taking our evening walk through our neighborhood, the cove, and we passed the retention pond uh, where we noticed, up oh, the geese are back, evidence all over the sidewalk. I don't know where they go in the winter. I'm sure some remain here and just fly from pond to pond. But numbers of the geese actually migrate. And as we walked, I kind of wondered out loud, how do they know it's time? And how do they communicate to each other? You see, those geese, like other birds, are responding to some inner urge to fly south each winter in search of food 
and then to return in the spring. And no one that I know can adequately explain what mysterious and unseen forces of nature actually trigger that twice-a-year migratory instinct in the birds. And yet, each bird answers that unseen, unheard, and yet unexplainable call. It's my theory that when God created people, he put within each one of us an invisible but indisputable call to return to him. It's explained in the Bible this way, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, the 11th verse. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart. That is, every human being has a consciousness of God and an undeniable desire to connect with him. And my hunch is that it means in some capacity that all people everywhere are spiritually thirsty. They're dealing with issues of ultimate concern. Uh, that is, you know, to be, to be fully human, to be created in the image of God, is, is to ask questions like, is there a God? And if so, what is he or she like? And does my life have meaning? What's the purpose? What, what, what's my destiny? What happens when I die? Why am I really here anyway? Now, I find this incredibly encouraging. It means that our job as workers in the harvest field is seldom to create a fire from scratch. Usually, we come into a life when there's already a candle burning, albeit a flicker, a glow of faith, maybe a small flame of desire, however weak it might be. And rather than criticizing the flame for being inconsistent or weak, I think we should seek to bless and honor the flame and desire to fan it into a larger, stronger, brighter flame. And we can have confidence because we know the Holy Spirit is already at work in the lives of every person. We can have confidence that Jesus is at work. He's planted eternity, the issues of great concern, already in their heart. And we can have confidence that that Jesus is at work drawing men and women to himself. Why? Because he loves them and all people matter to him. We don't need to control or direct the process, get nervous and jerky about everything. We can just relax. We may have to be patient. We may have to pray for spiritual eyes and ears to actually see and understand what it is that God is doing in their life. Some people try really hard to deny those questions. Maybe you identify with that on your journey. Maybe those questions have been buried beneath a landslide of sin and poor choices and disobedience, hurt or pain. Maybe some people misunderstand the God-given capacity inside. They, they misinterpret it as, a, as an appetite, and so they try to fulfill it in other ways through work or stuff or their appetites or leisure or whatever, education, fitness. And some have just managed through the years to harden their heart and and make those issues of ultimate concern just calloused. But they're still there. God said so. 
He's planted eternity in their heart. And God the Father is always at work in your classmates, in your roommates, in your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, the people that live in the apartment upstairs, the waitress at your table at Avani's when you go out for lunch today, the, the, the clerk at Kroger, all around us. God's at work in their lives. Many of these folks, perhaps even some of you, are experiencing the Holy Spirit but don't have a clue what it is that's going on. Convicted of guilt, having a sense that they should return to church, praying in secret, desperately longing for God to break through in meaningful ways in their lives or their complicated, messy situations. They're longing for reality in a spiritual journey, but maybe just haven't found it yet in the churches that they've visited. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is reaching out to them through beauty, or humor, or music, or creation, or poetry, or joy, or excitement, and they just don't know what to do with it. Maybe even God is reaching out to them in their pain and their difficulty, and they don't know what to do. So what our job is, as Jesus did, is to come alongside of them and help them understand what God is doing on their journey, drawing them to himself. Now you see the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, is at, always at work doing one of two things. It's real simple. He's either trying to get into the hearts of those who have not yet received him, or he's trying to get out of the hearts of those of us who have received him in order to make us a blessing to others, that they would experience his love and his mercy, his truth and his power and goodness. Into or out of, it's pretty simple. That's what the Holy Spirit's up to. God is always at work in the hearts of every person everywhere. And in the meantime, we just have to come alongside of them and be their friend because they matter to God and they're on a journey. Their story is important and they need to know where they fit into God's larger story. So just try to listen to the Holy Spirit and then say and do uh, the right thing at the right time with the right motive. In this sense, like conversations count really more than conversions in the journey. But I'll tell you, I'm, I'm still on a learning curve. I'm no expert by any means. On one occasion, several years ago, our next door neighbor at the time, Mark, expressed some small inkling of spiritual concern, interest. Now, he had disclosed very little about the inward journey, his inner struggles, his thoughts, his feelings. But I did know that he he had lost his father, who died suddenly and unexpectedly when he was a teenager. So one afternoon, Mark asked for a book that would help him understand the Bible. And I totally missed the sincerity of his real questions about God and why his father died. And so I went into my office and I, and I gave Mark uh, a copy of a Bible handbook filled with facts and figures and dates and places. I mean, I am so dull and slow to learn. I need another hundred hours, <laughs> really. You know, Mark was expressing spiritual interest in language that he had 
trying to figure out who God was and why would God allow his father to die, issues of ultimate concern, where did his father go and what am I supposed to make of that? And I am just too dim-witted to catch the interest. But it was there. So I'm learning. I'm learning now that God has planted eternity in the heart of every person all around us. But there are no formulas for how relationship with the living God is supposed to work. No formulas. Now, most of the people that I mentioned earlier, the Samaritan woman, the Syrophoenician woman, Zacchaeus, the Gadarene demoniac, Nicodemus, the lame man, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, most of them took the next unique step on their journey. Not all, but most. But here's the deal. You can't make a template for what that looks like in every person's life because they're unique. It's different. There's no one-size-fits-all for experiencing the living God and coming back to Him. So don't think of people as either in or out, having prayed the sinner's prayer or not having prayed the sinner's prayer, close to God or far from God, disciple of Jesus or no disciple of Jesus. Rather, think of everyone as on a spiritual journey. And our job as Christ followers is to influence the direction and momentum of their life towards Jesus, whatever that looks like, wherever they're at. You see, boundary thinking is is always asking the same question. Are you in or are you out? Are you a Christian? Are you not? Are you a disciple of Jesus or are you not? And in my mind, these questions actually create defensiveness and they shut down our opportunities for interaction and relationship. In my mind, these questions are a gross oversimplification of the lifelong process of following Jesus. And I'm going to suggest that better questions to ask might be, where are you going? What's important to you? And how's that working? Do you have a sense of God's purpose or destiny for your life and what it is? Have you seen God's hand in your history and where? And how have you responded to Jesus' call of, come, follow me? So embrace the journey factor. Anytime someone takes a step towards Jesus on their journey, it's a success and we can rejoice. The third thing that I see in Jesus is that he met needs and he demonstrated God's love. Jesus extended the kingdom of God not just with words, but with deeds of kindness and love and mercy and occasionally power. And I call this the kingdom factor. So we've seen the love factor, the journey factor, now the kingdom factor. All around us, people are in desperate need, aren't they? We we don't always see it, but, but they're there. And they matter to God, and they need to know that God loves them and hasn't forgotten about them. And that's our job. Jesus offers them real life, transformation, forgiveness, freedom from their stuff, healing, help for today, hope for tomorrow, uh, a vital connection with the living God through relationship, answering that invisible call. 
And like Jesus, we're just to demonstrate God's love and kindness. And that means we will intentionally relate to people in ways that say, you matter to God, and he loves you, and he hasn't forgotten about you. I'm not talking about just saying religious words, but thoughtful, Christ-like actions that actually help people see and feel the love of God the Father for them. Now, in our day of skepticism, it's absolutely essential to show God's love before we actually speak about it. And this transition can be hard for those of us who were raised on evangelism models that value logic, reason, argument, and content more than personal experience. And so we've got to let go of our evangelism perspective that says nothing of real value has taken place if people don't actually pray to receive Christ. Got to let that go. And so in preparing for a summer of fun, we're suggesting that we should just cultivate friendships and then be willing to demonstrate God's love by offering humble acts of kindness and generosity and service in Christ's name. No strings attached. Knowing that each of those acts contains a a tiny kernel of the love and goodness of God. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to unpack how we can cultivate those kinds of friendships and relationships. And then the last week in our time together, we're going to conclude by looking at what does it actually mean to serve others in love, those acts of love and mercy and kindness that prove to be powerful door openers. For instance, this opportunity to put this kind of outreach through kindness into practice is is listed in your program. It's going, to, it's going to be available this coming Saturday on the 28th. We'll have several opportunities. Um, and uh, if you want to, uh, you could join us as we, as we go to Southside Mission, joining with other uh, Christ followers who are ministering and reaching out to neighborhoods in need. You could show up here. Uh, we're going to distribute uh, light bulbs for free, just sharing God's love. The group in Morton is actually going to postpone their outreach in Morton and East Peoria area for a couple of weeks, and you can contact Lamar, whose number is listed in the program, Lamar Schrock. And um, if, you, if you're interested in doing that, you could uh, just check off at the bottom of your uh, Get Connected card that you, you may be interested in showing up, just so we have a head count. An opportunity in a more organized fashion to actually sow seeds of kindness in our community with, with no strings Attached. Now, now, please understand that we do these acts of love and service as not the new creative marketing strategy for the vineyard. That's not what this is about. Uh, we're simply bringing the love and grace and goodness and mercy of God and his kingdom to the earth where we live and work and play and go to school. We do it for free. We aren't getting trying to get people to do anything in return. We aren't even trying to get them to come to Vineyard, although we would rejoice if they do. History, our last 35 years of history and and sharing God's love this way proves that most of them don't, and that's fine. We're sowing to God's wind and reaping the whirlwind of his kingdom. We aren't even particularly trying to persuade people to become followers of Jesus, although we do believe that he's going to speak powerfully to them through our actions. Move them along on the journey. And at some point, we may actually be privileged to pray with them in a moment of of surrender. 
But sharing God's extravagant love in these simple acts of kindness is something all of you can do with the last 30 minutes of training. Two more 30 minutes worth in the next two weeks, you'll, you'll be prepared. With 10 hours, you're going to have pretty good grasp of the basics. And with 100 hours, you're going to be pretty experienced. So as we prepare for a summer of fun, we're not talking about a new church program that we're going to give the old college try for a few weeks and see what it's like. No, not at all. We're just going to learn to follow Jesus by embracing the love, the journey, and the kingdom factors into our life. And at its heart, this overflowing lifestyle of sharing God's love and truth and goodness and power is being that that fountain that, that touches others is actually going to become a fundamental part of who we are. Lord, we do pray that you would just take the, the truth of your model for life and cause us to be formed and shaped by it, even if it means letting go of preconceived notions about how it works or what you think of people. I pray, God, that you would change our hearts to look more like yours. You'd, you'd move us with compassion like you were moved, and you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, not a program, but with the Holy Spirit who prompts us to say and do the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reason. Thank you that you're at work doing this. And now, Lord, as we receive our offering, we we pray that you'd receive this and the songs that we sing as tokens of what they are, that we say we love you and want our lives to really count for you. Return your blessing, Lord, on those who sacrificially give and enable those who desire but can't Lord, bring your blessing and favor in their lives in the ways that will enable them. We thank you. Every good thing comes from you. And we return that thanks to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.